Monday night at our uh, leaders meeting. Amen. <laughs> we uh, really had a great, great time. And uh, at the end, we, we uh, just God's presence about the prophetic and the gifts and, and all that began to, to, uh, to move and stir in us. And we began to pray in that regard. And I don't even think, were you here? I mean, Ben wasn't even here, so he didn't even know. And on the way home, and uh, this is really not my norm, but on the way home, uh, even from the meeting, I would just say to you that before I got home, just the Spirit of the Lord just really uh, encountered me. I just overshadowed me. I don't want to make, you know, sound too, too big. But I mean, I'm just, just the power of God began to come upon me on the way home. And I just began to just pray in tongues, declare and prophesy in tongues, and just begin to... Just, you know, it was just very, very unusual uh, and, and didn't plan it, of course. We, we were talked about that. And, and I felt like that as, as I began to do that, that God began to speak to me about this church. And uh, I mean prophetically. And so uh, I wrote down uh, late that evening what, what I felt like God had said. And, uh, and I'm always mindful, you know, God, are you speaking this to me directly? Are you speaking this to our church? Or, and, and I felt like it was both. And, uh, and so then I began to pray this week, and I said, God, when do I release this? When do I release this word? And, uh, and of course, I'm like, you know, I don't know if I'm like you or not, but I just said, God, just somehow this morning, give me some kind of sign, some confirmation that I'm supposed to, release this prophetic word to the church and right before I got up Ben comes and kneels down and says I believe God has a word for the church and not only is the word that God give him but that was my emphasis that was what I asked God for to and so today is today I said well Lord you know I was thinking a lot of people's on spring break and our crowd's a little bit off today and maybe just wait till a more opportune time and and uh and thank you for being obedient Ben because God's a prompt to me, and I received the word of the Lord for him. And this is what I believe that Monday night that God said to me, this is our, our word. I, and I just wrote this out. I said, I felt that God wanted to say to us as Grace Point family, God says you are my workmanship, my work of art. You are surprisingly different from what people are used to seeing. For I have worked into you intense colors of grace different textures of diversity and layers of relationships. I want you to know that I have put my heart into this work. There is an atmosphere to you that is tangible to others that will draw people in. For I say to you, don't try and copy other works. Don't look at what you perceive to be successful and what you think people like, for they just produce uniformity that people will grow tired of. For what I am creating in you, it is spirit-breathed my workmanship, my delight, and the results are infectious. It will attract, so don't copy another work, but be who you are, for I have uniquely created you. For you are different from other works, and you shall be surprised by the response. For though you have been hidden away, as I have worked upon you layer by layer, I say now it is time for you to be brought out. It is now time for you to be made public. I am going to put you on display. You will be, become very visible and many will be drawn by your atmosphere and be captivated by your beauty. I believe that's the word from God for this house. Amen. You receive it. Amen. 
It even joins in with what God just said through Ben to us. It's time. It's time. Did you hear those same words? God's saying it's time. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I uh, want to preach this morning on the title, The Throne of Grace. And uh, I, to do that, I want to start out in Isaiah 6, 1 through 3. The book of Isaiah, or Isaiah as it really is. Chapter 6, verse 1, it says, in the, king, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and his train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, and two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of of his glory. Can you say amen to the reading of God's word? Father, we thank you for the word of God, for the word from God, for the word of God is your word. It is God breathed. And I thank you for your word today. May it accomplish eternal significant things in everyone that receives and believes it. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. amen. You can be seated. Thank you for standing in honor of God's word. In this passage, you know, I just God's throne has not changed from the very beginning. God has always been seated on the throne of grace. I like the King James Version of this uh, rendering because it, it says in the King James, it says in the year that King Uzziah died, it says, I saw also the Lord. I saw also the Lord. And I felt like the first thing that God wanted me to say to you is that, that, that no matter what has died or seemingly died in your life, whatever your King Uzziah is, Whatever you were looking to, counting on, hoping in, it, it may have died, but God is alive. Amen. God is still seated upon his throne. No matter what else in your life looks like has been vacated, eliminated. I mean, an earthly throne may be vacated, but the heavenly throne is still occupied by God. Can you say that God is still on his throne today? Isaiah 52 and 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. That's the gospel. That's what it means, good news. Who proclaims peace. Peace with what? We have peace with God now because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It says, Who brings glad tidings of good things. Everybody say good things. Who proclaims salvation. Who says to Zion. Now Zion's the church. This is what God says to his church. Your God reigns. God says that he wants people to know that I'm still on the throne, that I reign. And so what's the good news? It don't matter what you're facing, what you're going through, what the doctor said, what the banker said, what the CPA said, what it looks like, your God reigns. He's still on the throne. He's still seated there. And I want you to know that God is sitting on a throne. You can't find any place in the Bible. There's no picture in the Bible of God running around. There's no picture in the Bible of God wringing his hands. Heaven is not coming apart at the seams. God is not worried. Heaven is not concerned. Come, come on, somebody. Heaven's not coming apart. He said he is, he is seated upon a throne. Why? Why is he sitting down? Is he tired? His work is finished, isn't he? That's why he is sitting down. Every picture you have in Scripture of the throne of God, you see nothing but tranquility and peace. Revelation 4 and 1 gives us a picture of the throne of God. It says... That John in the spirit, he already said in chapter one, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. 
How many knows that you're in the Lord's day? This is the day of the Sabbath of God, not this day of the week, this, this time, because Jesus is our Sabbath. Jesus is our rest. We have ceased from our labors. It says, after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open heaven. Everybody say open heaven. I've told you this over and over. The only place that heavens are closed is between your ears. There's people today that will start their service praying for an open heaven. It's just because they don't know what the word says. God's not, there's not an open window in heaven. This is a door. Jesus is the door. If you're in, if you're in Christ, you've gone through that door to approach the Father. Can you say amen? And that door is open, will ever, forever be open. There's an open heaven over us, over your business, over your house, over your family, over your life. There's an open heaven over this service today. And it says that the first voice I heard was like a trumpet speaking to me. Come up here. God's always going to call you up higher. And he says, I'm going to show you things that must take place after this. And immediately I was in the spirit. And behold, a throne set in heaven and one set on the throne. And he who sat on that throne, notice he's still again, he is sitting on the throne. He is seated there. He's not running around. He's at peace. It says the one who sat there was like Jasper, sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne. You understand about the rainbow? Do you really as a believer understand what the rainbow is? Yeah, that's God's covenant that he made with Noah. But you know what that covenant was? Rainbow, the bow is a bow and arrow. That's exactly what God means. That's exactly what God said. And what you have, the only thing that makes a bow lethal is the arrow in it. You take away the arrow, you just got a piece of stick with a string. You understand what I'm saying? God is saying every time that you see that rainbow in the sky, God is saying that the, the wrath of God, the judgment of God, that piercing judgment has been removed by Jesus Christ. You understand all you have is the bow. There's no arrow with it anymore. God made a covenant. You understand that? And God sets there with this rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. And around the throne, there's even 24 thrones upon which the 24 elders, but look what they're doing. They are sitting. They are seated. All of heaven's at peace. Why are they sitting? Because they're clothed in white robes, righteousness. They had crowns of gold on their head. On down in verse 6, it says the throne before it's like a sea of glass like crystal. In Revelation 4 and 6, it's just total peace. You ever see somebody look at a, across the lake and the wind's not blowing? And they say, look at there, smooth as glass. Just smooth as glass. That's the way it is around the throne. The Bible says in Hebrews 4 and 16 that this throne, it tells us specifically, is a throne of grace. In Hebrews 4 16, it says, let us, therefore. Now, the reason you see a therefore, find out what is therefore, the verses right above it, it says that we do not have a, a high priest that is no longer sympathetic to us because we have a sympathetic high priest that was in all points tempted and tested and tempted to sin like we, but yet without sin. And so therefore, since we have a priest that has put upon himself humanity, he's been tempted in all points just like us. He knows what it feels like. He knows what we face in this human body. But it says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's a throne of grace. It's not a throne of judgment. It's a throne of grace. And it says, it's a throne of grace. Why? Because of him who sits on that throne. It's not the throne that makes it grace. It's him who sits on the throne that makes it a throne of grace. In other words, grace himself is enthroned. That's why it's the throne of grace. 
Now listen, most Christians only quote this verse when they're in trouble. They said, you know, we can find, uh, 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 obtain mercy and find grace in a time of trouble. But let me tell you something. Uh, they only quote it then or they quote it when they feel like they have an earthly need. But that's not what this verse is focusing on. There's not a moment, listen to me, there's not a moment that we are not in need of God's grace. You agree with that? We need God's grace all the time. When you sin and blow it, you need God's grace. When, when, when you're doing well, you need God's grace. God says that we're to come boldly. Boldly. How many ever heard this, Lord, we just come to you as humbly as we know how? Well, that's okay if you know what that means, but that's not in the Bible. But that's in churches. Because they're coming as a worm. They're coming as a sinner. They're coming as somebody that's not in right relationship with God. They come crawling in hoping they don't get squashed. They don't understand. That's really, really, it's an offense to God because they're nullifying what Jesus accomplished on the cross. The Bible says to come how? Boldly. Who are these people that the Bible says and calls to come boldly? The Bible says in Proverbs 28 and 1 that the righteous are as bold as lions. Who's the bold people? The ones that know they're righteous. They're the ones that, that come boldly. Because listen, not only can they come to God boldly because they know that they've been made righteous, and not only that he will receive them, but listen, that he wants them there. That he welcomes us there. That he wants us in his presence. The righteousness that makes them and us bold. That's what fills us with confidence. And it's, and it's not our righteousness, is it? His righteousness. It's his righteousness. I know I've mentioned this before, but this is the main theme of the Bible. They've been made righteous. We've been made righteous if you've received Jesus. The Bible says that you've received the gift of righteousness. If it's a gift, you didn't earn it. And if it's a gift, you can't unearn it. It's a gift of righteousness. The Bible talks about the revelation of righteousness. Righteousness has to be, it says, revealed. To whom righteousness has been revealed. Listen, we received it. We didn't achieve it. Can you say amen? amen. Now, most of the church knows that they got saved by grace, but then they think their relationship with God now is contingent upon their performance and what they do. And it's not. It's such a lie. I'm right with God. If you've been saved, born again, you're right with God right now. You know I'm right with God. And, and you're right with God if you've received Jesus. And you can't be any more right with God than you are right now. You're not going to be more right with God when you get to heaven than you are right now. Notice how quiet it starts getting when you start saying that. I have the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Is that what the Bible says? Listen, how right am I? I am as, listen, I am as right with God as Jesus is. Thank you, Ben. Prove it in the Bible. I'm glad you asked. First John chapter four, verse 17. An amazing verse that most people read it, can't believe it, don't believe it. Listen to what it says. First John 4, 17. Love not will be, has been perfected among us in this, that we may have what? Say it aloud. Be bold this morning. That we may have what? 
boldness in the day of judgment. Now for the believer, our judgment has already happened. It's in the past. Because our sin has been judged in Christ Jesus. In other words, he bore our punishment and our judgment. For those who have not accepted Jesus, their judgment is ahead of them. Come on, somebody. But we have boldness in the day of judgment. We don't have to worry about it. Because why? As he is. Not as he was. Not as he will be. But as he is, so are we, where? In this world. Guys, that's an amazing verse. As he is, so are we in this world. As he is. How, how is he right now? Let me ask you like this. Is Jesus righteous? So are we. Right now. In this world. Is Jesus pleasing to the Father? Then so are we. Right now. In this world. Is Jesus loved by the Father? Then so are we. Right now. In this world. Is Jesus at peace with the Father? Then so are we. Right now in this world. If you could get that, it'd change your world. So are we. If it said so as he was, I'd take that. That'd be good. But it doesn't say that. It says as he is right now. Seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. So are we. In this world. My identity is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Righteousness is the main theme of the word of God. Listen to this. Righteousness or the word righteous, listen, appears 540 times in the Bible. How many believe faith is pretty important in the Bible? The word faith even. Faith, faithfulness, and faithful. So I looked up all those words and those words only appear 348 times. So that means that one and a half times more in Scripture, the word righteousness appears over the word of faith, over the word faith. Do you understand? Righteousness is extremely important. And when you see the word justified in the Bible, it means the same thing as made righteous. Justified, you've heard it said, what does justified mean? It means justified never sinned. In other words, we stand before God justified before God. We, are, we have been justified, what? By our performance, by our prayers, by what we've done. No, we've been justified by believing. The, 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 the just shall live by faith. The Bible where that quotes that from the old covenant said the just shall live by his faith. You know who the his is? Jesus, we're living by his faith because to every man he has given the measure of faith. Your, the faith you have was a gift from God. Do you understand that you don't grow in righteousness? You grow in grace. You can grow in wisdom. You can grow in knowledge. But you can't grow in righteousness. You can't grow in holiness. If you're not righteous, you're unrighteous. There is no in-between. Before I've asked folks, I've said in, you know, in my office in different settings and teaching, I said, you know, on a one to ten scale, wh where would you say you are with God concerning righteousness? It's really a kind of a setup question. Listen to me. I've never had anybody go higher than a seven. 
Normally I get like four, three, five. You know why you say that? Because you think God grades on a curve. This ain't a curve system. This ain't try to pile up more good deeds than you do bad deeds and somehow you'll be accepted. Scales a tip in your favor. Let me tell you how it is. The Bible says, in other words, if you, okay, there is no scale. So you're, you're either, forget the one to 10, but let's just play the game. You're either a 10, in other words, what's it, what's it going to take for you to go to heaven? What's it going to take for you to be accepted by God? It's going to take a 10. You ever hear a Christian say, well, ain't nobody perfect. Or I'm not perfect. You better be. That's the only people going to heaven, perfect people. See how quiet I got? You think I just messed up? The only perfect one to ever live on this earth, what was his name? Jesus. Jesus didn't come to destroy the law. He fulfilled the law. The law is not just ten commandments. That's the only ones that were written in stone by the finger of God were 10, but there's actually 630 commandments. And the Bible says that if you break one of them, just one of them, how many of them are you guilty of breaking? Now, for all you people that didn't say anything, I want you to know that's what the Bible says. So if you break one commandment, if you've ever broken one commandment, not if you do it tomorrow, but if you've ever broken one commandment, you are now guilty of violating and breaking every one of the 630 commandments. And the only way that you can stand before God is you have to be perfect and never have broken a commandment. How are you going to get that? The only person that didn't violate, break the commandments is Jesus. Jesus did not come to Destroy the law, he come to fulfill it, to fill it full. And now so that the Bible says that the righteous requirement of the law might be realized, fulfilled in us, we've been given the gift of Christ. In other words, we have been accredited to our account, the righteousness of God, which was in Christ Jesus. So if it takes 10, in other words, if it takes a 10 to be acceptable to God, which it does, in other words, for all the people that think, you know, well, we're supposed to, this is a whole other sermon another time, but, you know, there, there is actually a Christian movement called the red, the red letter movement, or the, the, you know, the words in red movement, or red Christianity, or something like that. I mean, it's a national movement, worldwide, really. Red letter Christianity, they call it. And, and, and what it is, is these brothers have started this because they're saying that we need to obey all the words in red that Jesus said. Really. And there are some Christians that think the words in red. Do you understand what I mean by that? In other words, if you have a Bible in the New Testament where they put the words in red, in other words, that just saved them a lot of quotation marks. So what they did when Jesus spoke, they put it in red. Okay? I actually have a big old Bible, a big Bible. It's like when we go on your coffee table that I bought one time many years ago when I first got saved. It's, it's, the, it's the whole Bible, and the Old Covenant is, has the words of God in red. That's interesting, isn't it? I paid $100 for it. That was to help some missions, and they said, you did that, get a, get a Bible. It took me six months to pay out the pledge. We were first married in Pole. <clears throat> Let me say something to you. The words in black in the New Testament are just as inspired by God as the words in red. 
because it is all the word of God. And if you try to assign a higher level to this one and a lower level to that one, you are messing with the word of God. We don't understand that Jesus was born under the law, the Bible says, to redeem those under the law. So there's two covenants. The new covenant did not start in Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. The new covenant did not begin with the birth of Jesus at the manger. The new covenant, which is a new testament, which is your last will and testament, try to draw the money from your family member before they're dead. Go down to the lawyer and say, I don't want to wait for them to die. I want my inheritance now. The Bible always speaks about inheritance. It speaks about us receiving an inheritance. You can't get an inheritance until the person has died. The, 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 the Bible, the covenant does not go into effect when Jesus was born, but the covenant went into effect when Jesus died. So Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 is not the beginning of the New Testament. I understand in our dividing of the scriptures, we start there with the 27 books that make up what we call the New Testament, but realizing and receiving the inheritance of what was promised does not happen until Jesus sheds his blood on the cross. When Jesus held up the cup at the Last Supper and said, this is the blood of my New Testament, my new covenant that he was going to shed. And once his blood was shed, then the covenant and the benefits thereof went into force. You agree with that? I hope you do. That's the word of God. So for all the people that want to keep all the words of red, let me give you some words in red. Ready? If your right hand offends you, cut it off. In other words, if you've ever used your right hand, by the way, it means your left hand too, to commit any sin, you're to take a machete and chop it off. I just need somebody to help me because they're going to die dead on this old middle section. Is that words in red? Sermon on the Mount, in case you want to check it out. Another thing that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount is, Be ye perfect. Words in red. Be ye perfect. God's requirement has always been for perfection. But the New Testament in the epistle says, Now I have been perfected forever by the blood of Jesus Christ. I've been made perfect. Made in holiness. Made righteous before God through Jesus Christ. So they, you're either a 10 or you're a zero. No curve grading here. In other words, for those people that told me I'm a five or I think maybe a six. And it, listen, and listen, and it depends on what day you ask them. You could ask them on one day and they'll say, maybe they might even say, I'm a seven. But you ask them when they've had a bad day or a bad week and they go, I'm, I'm, I'm probably just a two, bro, Dale. See, that's your problem. You think God relates to you based on your performance. Based on your good days, bad days, good weeks, bad weeks, whether you've prayed or not, prayed enough. Listen, all my life before I begin to get the revelation of God's grace, no matter how, and I'm, you're looking at a guy that spent hours, she's sitting right there, hours. I built a cabin in the woods just to pray in. Hours in prayer, hours. And no matter how many hours I spent, whether it was four or eight or 12, as soon as I, my knees came up and I began to walk out of that cabin, I'd always hear that voice say, you should have prayed more. You could have done more. That was not my father. How much is enough? 
You don't even know. That's the problem. You don't know. Let me ask you this. If the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross did not make you perfect and righteous before God, what act will you do? What will you do that will complete the job? In other words, what you're saying is that Jesus was not enough. His blood was not pure enough. His blood was not holy enough. He didn't do enough to make me righteous. Therefore, I now have to do something and I have to add to what he's done. That's blasphemous. Your blood means nothing shed. Even if you gave you life, it will accomplish nothing as far as making you right with God. That's the Bible. And if you understand that, that's what makes you love Jesus so much because you see what he accomplished on the cross for us. Can somebody say amen? amen? See, if you're not righteous, then you're unrighteous. There's no in between. It's like pregnant. You either is or you ain't. You're not a little pregnant. Well, how pregnant? Well, I'm about that much pregnant. No, you're not. You're either pregnant or you're not. You're either righteous or you're not. Heaven is made only for the righteous. All of God's promises, all of God's blessings are to and for the righteous. He has nothing to offer you if you are unrighteous. Listen to some of these, I'm not going to give you references, but this is the Bible. The prayers of a righteous man accomplishes much. The righteous run into the Lord, and he's their high tower, and they are saved. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. And his ears are open to their cry. David said, I have never seen the righteous forsaken, nor God's seed begging bread. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He shall never permit the feet of the righteous to be moved. The Bible says a righteous man may fall seven times, but he gets back up again. He always rises back up because his righteousness is the righteousness of God. Now listen to me, many people will miss the righteousness of God and therefore they will miss the boldness that comes from that righteousness because of what Paul said in Romans 10, verses 2 and 3. He primarily was talking about the, the Jews here. And he says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Just because you're zealous about God don't mean you, you understand what God, if you, don't, if you miss grace... Paul, Saul of Tarsus, he was zealous for God, killing Christians. But he was ignorant of how righteousness really came. Verse 3 says, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, listen, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. See, you have to submit to this. And we by nature don't like to submit to anything or anyone. We are rebellious by nature. He says submit. What's the word submit? Hupotasso. Come under authority. In other words, we're not bound by sin now because you're not under law. You're under what? Grace. Why? Because I've submitted to the righteousness of God. I've submitted to his righteousness. I give up trying to make myself righteous. I don't have to try to please God. Somebody did that on my behalf. His name is Jesus. Does that mean that God don't care what I do? No, I didn't mean that. 
I mean, God cares about what you do because he cares about you. Sin hurts. It causes pain. It hurts people that God loves. It hurts people that you love. God don't want you to commit sin. I'm not saying there's no consequences to sin. But in your spirit that got born again, you are perfect, holy, and righteous eternally forever before God. And that, nothing changes that. Now, now notice it says they've not submitted to the righteousness of God. Listen, it's an act of faith. It takes faith to come boldly to God. I mean, it takes faith. And, and then look what it says, to obtain mercy and find grace. Especially when you've blown it. Especially when you've sinned. It takes faith to still in that condition that you perceive yourself to be in to come boldly to God. Let me tell you what most Christians do when they sin. They hide from God. Just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. They don't come boldly to God. They don't come to God to stay away from God. Listen, mercy and grace, it says. Let, let me tell you, grace, you, you, you know this, mercy is not getting what we deserve. That's mercy. Grace is receiving what we don't deserve, the righteousness of God. I remember one time there was this man, this is kind of old, dated. Now you know that when I say this, but, but he made his living developing pictures. He had a studio. Remember when you actually carried the film to some black place and so he developed film for people, their portraits and so forth, and then they would come back in, and then he would show them the pictures, you know, uh, that he had developed for them and, and, and so forth. And so one time he said that he was showing the pictures to this woman. And, you know, she was looking at herself, you know, in the picture, and she said, well, that picture just doesn't do me justice. You ever heard people say that? That just, didn't do, just doesn't do me justice. And he said, he said I didn't say this, of course, because, you know, I want to stay in business. But he said, I was thinking, woman, you don't need justice, you need mercy. We're by nature very selfish people. You get a family portrait, you get a portrait with you and all your brothers and sisters or whatever it is, you, and they hand you that picture, what's the first person you look at in the picture? Yourself. And if you like the way you look, it's a good picture. If you don't like the way you look, it's a terrible picture. That's a horrible picture. Throw that away. Based on how you perceive you look in that picture. You don't care that everybody else looks just radiant. Galatians 5 and 4 most times you hear this verse, we, we, we don't understand it. You hear somebody, you know, they've committed sin. There's some believers done this, some politicians done this. And what the news reports or what the church says is they've fallen from grace. You ever heard that term? They've fallen from grace. Can a Christian fall from grace? Can a Christian fall from grace by sin? Listen to me. Galatians 5 and 4 says, Paul said, you have become estranged. Or estranged means separated or divorced from Christ Listen, you who attempt to be justified, what did I tell you justified means? Made righteous. So you, you have been divorced, you have divorced yourself from Christ. He didn't divorce you, you divorced him. Listen, I'm not talking about you lost your salvation. You have divorced yourself from Christ. You who attempt to be made righteous, what it means, by law, you have fallen from grace. You don't fall from grace by sleeping with your secretary. In fact, the more sin you commit, I'm not encouraging sin here, I'm not going to tell you what the Bible says, where, where sin abounds, their grace that much more abounds. So actually when somebody falls in sin, they actually have fallen into grace. But when a believer tries to start being made righteous by their performance, by keeping the Ten Commandments, by obeying rules, regulations, be they from God or not, they have just fallen 
from grace and divorced themselves from the righteousness of Christ. Do, do you see that? Now it's fine to be sorrowful. Godly sorrow worketh repentance. It's fine to be sorrowful for your sin, but it's not okay to deny our righteousness that was a gift and to declare and act like that the work of Jesus it was not enough and was insufficient. Because you actually nullify the work of Christ when you set out to d d develop your own righteousness by your performance. Somehow because you think you do this, you do this, you do this, that God now likes you more than he did before you did that is a messed up view of God. You remember what God told Peter in Acts 10 in that vision where he saw the sheet come down three times and it had all manner of unclean beasts upon it. And, and this was the word from God. Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter was still saturated in that Jewish law stuff, even though he was a New Testament believer now, but he's saturated in that, that, that thinking as a Jew in the law. And he says, I, no, I, I will not do that. He said, I, I will not eat anything that's unclean. Now, God wasn't talking to him about his diet. It has nothing to do with food. Because then he goes on to say that I perceive now that what, what he's talking about is men. And what was going to happen to Peter was that he's going to go to Cornelius' house, his Gentile's home, non-Jew. And there they were going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They were going to receive salvation just like the Jews had. And it was going to be witnessed powerfully by God's coming. But listen to me. God told him, he said, you must not call unclean what I have cleansed. Listen to me. What was it that cleansed you? The blood of Jesus. What was it that made you and I righteous? The blood of Jesus. God, listen to me. God says for you never to call unclean, unrighteous, that's what the word means, what I have cleansed or made righteous. God, that means yourself. Don't ever call yourself unrighteous. You may behave unrighteously, you may look unrighteous, you may feel unrighteous, but you are still the righteous of God. And in fact, in that moment, if you would confess not your sin, but confess what God says about you, that I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, you would have the power then to overcome what was trying to overcome you. To refuse to come boldly to the throne room of grace is a rejection of faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Listen to this. Romans eleven twenty nine 29 says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Is that right or not? All right, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You understand what irrevocable means, right? I'm not trying to insult you. I'm just trying to make sure. Okay, righteousness is a gift. If you've ever been righteous for a millisecond, you're still righteous right now because it was a gift. Because God would never revoke it from you. Man, if you could just get that. Righteousness is a gift. So God's gift is irrevocable. It's not based on, it wasn't given based on your performance and it will never be taken away based on your performance. You are righteous before God. You're not righteously behaved all the time, but you're eternally righteous made that way by the blood of Jesus. Can you say amen? Holiness is the same thing. It's a gift. Listen, if God ever gave you that gift, you still have it. Let me tell you something that makes God unique. If I had the, the ability to know this supernatural, if I had the ability, in other words, if you as a person, and I love you, and we're friends, and, and all that, 
but yet I could see down accurately, pretend with me now, but I could see in the future prophetically, and I could see that a month from now, you're going to stab me in the back. You're going to gut me emotionally. You're going to, you're going to slander me. You're going to hurt me. You're going to do everything you can to bring hurt and pain in my life. And you mean to do it. If I had the ability to know that, I'm going to have a hard time being nice to you today. Now, I know I'm weird, and you would be better than that. But I'm going to have a hard time cuddling up to you, knowing that 30 days from now, you're going to gut me. It's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. Do you understand that that's the way God is? That God be even before the foundation of the world. But do you understand God knows what you're going to do a month from now? God knows what you're going to do a year from now? And God is not like us. And God is not, is not a man that he should lie. And God don't treat us like men treat each other. And God don't see like men see each other. In the world you do good, you get good. Do bad, you get bad. That's humanism. But in the kingdom, God gives grace to everyone. The grace of God has appeared to all men. And God is not, and listen, if you could understand that, 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 and you know that you've had some tremendous times of just God just manifesting his blessing on your life, and then maybe even the very, within 24 hours you blew it. And you look back and you go, God, I know you knew this was going to happen, and you blessed me so good yesterday. How could you do that? Because God is grace. God's not pretending here. You, you understand that he sets, rules, reigns from a throne of grace. We don't understand the magnificence of God. I, I don't have time to, to go on in to finish the Isaiah thing, but let me just hit these right here. It, it says that, that, that in the year the King Uzziah died, I also, and we're not asking you to deny the death that you see, but in death can you also say, I also this is real here, this is earthly, but the, I see the Lord. God's still there. It doesn't matter what's happened. Yeah, I'm divorced, this, this has happened, but I, see, I also see the Lord. Yeah, this, this is bad, this is tragic, but I also see the Lord. You know what he is? High and lifted up. He's not low, he's high. And What does high and lifted up mean? It means he's superior over every other throne in the universe. Superior in what way? Superior in every way. Superior in wisdom. Superior in knowledge. Superior in love. Superior in grace. Superior in every way. High and lifted up. Not brought low. You can't bring God down. Superior in wisdom. Superior in every way. And then it said that his train filled the temple. You ever been to these weddings? I've preached quite a few of them. You know what takes a lot of time at a wedding when they're starting to take pictures? It's for those people to get that bride's train adjusted just right, flowing over the steps of the stage where they can take that picture of her train. The Bible says that God has a train here, that word train, that, that it, it's his manifested presence. And, it, and not only does it say it fills the temple, actually in the Hebrew it says it's filling it and keeps on filling it. That's what it says. What, 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 what does that mean? It, it means that God is, is splendor. 
It means that God is lavish. He's the God of not just enough, not the God of just get by. He's the God of more than enough. If you understand when your kids are little, if you remember those days, your grandchildren even, about how they deal with you, you know, and I see it now in my grandchildren, but they, they don't see me. They, to me, they look at me as if I have no limits. And I mean money-wise. If I had half the money that Aiden thinks I have, he says, Papa can do anything, can buy anything. He looks at me and, and he'll just, and, and now he's so smart, four years old, but it, like if you can't find it at Toys R Us, I mean, he'll tell them, go on Toys R Us and see if they have it. He tells me that. And I'll search it, know that it's not in the store. He said, well, check Amazon. I'm not making this up. So here lately, he's been wanting this Hatchable. Anybody remember the Christmas rush for those Hatchables? If you don't have small kids, you know what I'm talking about. But it's just an egg, just a big egg, and somehow you just set it around, and for long, the thing inside it starts pecking a hole out of it. And then you got you a stuffed animal, you know, hallelujah. You know, and, they, and they're anywhere from 100 bucks to 150 bucks. Okay? So here lately, you know, uh, you know just the other day, but Poppy, I, I, want, I want that. And he says, you know you get me whatever I want. He can play me like a fiddle. So what do you think is sitting in my house right now in a box from Amazon? He actually went off with his mom and dad, which was kind of a weird thing. And, uh, but he'll be back today. And it arrived yesterday. The point is, he looks at me with that childlike faith that we should look to God. In other words, there's no limits that he sees. I understand he don't understand, but what he does have is faith in me. I'm not El Chipo, I'm El Shaddad. El Shaddai means the God of more than enough. Are y'all with me? But Aid looks at me and so did my kids. El Shaddad, the dad of more than enough. There's no limits. In his little eyes, those eyes of faith in me and in my goodness and desire to bring good things to him. Well, you need to teach him to say, I understand all that. There'll be time for that. But right now, he needs to be lavished. So does all my grandbabies. Lavished with love and grace. And just because there'll, there'll be time. I mean, don't worry, don't worry about the world to teach them to some degree. But God's a lavish God. It says that he's high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. And then it talks about those seraphims. These are some kind of different class of angels. And I thought about these magnificent creatures, these angels that are before God. God is so revered. God is so God that these seraphims cannot look him straight on. They cannot lock eyes with him. They cannot look at him straight on at God. And so they cover their faces. They cover their hands. They're embarrassed by their feet. They cover their feet in his presence. And they speak one to another. They speak one to another. And they, they, the Bible says that they, they, they say uh, one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And then it makes a prophetic declaration they do. They say the whole earth is full of his glory. They're, they're, they're releasing that prophetic 
word and and, and, and when it says God is holy, 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 we've heard somebody say one time, you know, that the cherubim, this is a whole other class, that circle the throne, crying that same phrase, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. And, you, you know, in your natural human mind, you go, that's kind of boring after a couple of billion, trillion years. Someone said they had a vision of heaven and they saw that every time there was a revolution, every time that they circled the throne, they saw a facet, an aspect of God that they had never seen before. There is one thing that is not in heaven and that's boredom, I assure you. To say holy, holy, holy means that God is different. That he is holy. What God is saying is tell them, when Moses said, who did I say sent me? You just tell them I am. In other words, I am means there's nothing outside myself that I need to complete myself. I am. I am. When they came to arrest Jesus in the garden, Jesus said, who are you looking for? They said, we're looking for Jesus the Christ. Are you he? In your Bible it says, I am he. But that's not what it says because the word he is italicized. Jesus, italicized means it was added by the translators. Jesus said, I am. And when he said, I am, they all fell backwards because I am was standing before them. Not I will be. Not I was. I am. Religion tries to make God I was. Oh, you should have lived in the days of Jesus. It was powerful. Religion tries to say, I will be. Won't it be wonderful over there, by and by, after a while, over yonder? It always wants to keep you looking in the future or in the past. But God says, I am a present help in time of trouble. I am your peace. I am your faith. I am your love. I am your joy. I am your strength. I am your salvation. I am your righteousness. I am your holiness. I am your sanctification. I am everything that you need. I am. Not I will be. Not I was. I am. When you pray, you're praying to I am. I am. God is glorious. His glory. God's glory is the manifestation of His holiness. His glory is the open revelation of His holiness. That God that sits on the throne, the throne of grace, because He is grace and that's what makes it a throne of grace, that God has a name. And his name is Jesus the Christ. That's who he is. He sits on the throne of grace. And you can come boldly. Do you know what I'm saying? The Bible said that him who knew no sin became sin. That we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I love that. I think it's 2 Corinthians 5, 17. That means, this is what I, this is what I always just, that means that Jesus has never sinned. Listen, he has never known sin. You, you understand this? That sometimes you listen, you go to buy a used car. This hit my mind while I was shaving this morning. Weird stuff happens when I shave. But I was shaving and I was thinking about the message. I was thinking about this service and I was thinking about this. 
And, and this is the image that came to my mind. I felt like this came to my mind. I didn't say it was the Lord. It could be just all Dale, okay? But I was thinking about when you go to a car, you know, and you see a car and it's a used car, but it's shiny, it's pristine. I mean, you don't see a scratch on it. But we've been encouraged in this society now to not accept what we see. And, you know, there's commercials that say, show me the Carfax. In other words, we want to run a, 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 a Carfax. Steve would know more about it than I do, but it's a computer record of that car has ever been in a body shop, and, and you know it's been wrecked, and it's been repaired, and now someone's trying to sell it. But we just want you to know, and so if you run the Carfax, and if the guy comes out and says, you know what, you know, here's the Carfax, and you know, back two years ago it was in a wreck. Well, what was wrecked? Well, they you know, had to put a new fender on it, and you know, this, and this, and this, and all of a sudden, your, your uh, estimation of the car just dropped. Right? It don't matter if they fixed it perfectly. But your estimation in the value of the car just dropped. And in fact, in fact, you would use that if you still want the car, which is a big if. But if now if you still want it, you're going to use that as a real strong negotiating tool. Now listen, well, this thing here been wrecked now. I mean, yeah, I got the car facts on this thing here. It might look good, but deep down, I know it's been in a wreck. And it's been hauled by a wrecker to the garage, and it's had to be fixed. And you know, you can't ever make it back like it really was. You and I have driven cars, and unfortunately sometimes have gotten in accidents. And, and, and from then on, the mentality is we're driving something that's messed up. This thing's been in a wreck. And, and, and I think a lot of times it's just in our head. This thing don't drive like it used to. It's all in the head. But, you know, you just, I don't know, it just don't steer like it used to before I got in the wreck. It just don't drive like it used to. And, and, and most people that have a car like that, they'll turn around and trade that thing. Because it's a mentality. You're driving, what's that got to do with anything? Let me tell you what God didn't do with you. We've all been wrecked by sin. And, and, and what God didn't do is put you in the shop and redo everything. And put a new coat of paint on you and stamp you and call you righteous and set you back out on the parking lot. Uh-uh. What God did with you is he put you in that big thing that got in the junkyard where it crushes the car flat. And then they throw that into the fire and melt it, and that's done away with. And God made you a whole new car because you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. You're not an old creation. You're a new creation. You were, listen, if you, can, if you just re- listen, this is a, it's a faith thing. Listen, the righteousness that you and I now have been gifted is a righteousness that has never known not one sin. My spirit has no clue about sin. My spirit has no point of reference to sin. My spirit man that was born again has no point of reference. When you say sin, he has no reference to nothing about it. Why are you talking to God about stuff that God don't even remember? Well, God knows everything. No, he don't. Not your sin. He said, I will never remember your sin. I will itemize, destroy, separate your sin as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? Get back to me on that. It's ridiculous. When you understand that that's the righteous you stand in, and if you will live out of that revelation, and when you blow it, and you will sometimes, but what you can do then, what I used to do is when I blew it, is what I used to do. I would grovel. I felt like dirt, guilt, shame, condemnation. I felt like a worm. None of that was from the Lord. I thought a lot of it was. 
I would blame the Holy Ghost on a lot of it. Well, the Holy Ghost just, you know, convicted me of my sin. Holy Ghost ain't squashing you in the floor, calling you a bug. Holy Ghost ain't saying, here you go again. You done told God a thousand times you weren't going to do this. Look at you, it's a thousand and one now. Piece of trash. You're never going to get better. You're always going to do like You're always going to be addicted. You're always going to be bound by this. You're always, always, always. That's never God. That's never God. I thought it was. And so depending on the, the severity that I judge my sin, I would beg God to forgive me. I'd say, Father, I'm so sorry for doing that. And I'd cry sometimes. I'd feel like a piece of trash. And, and I, I just felt like dirt. God, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And I never would say it one time. And I'd ask him again. Sometimes I'd spend 30 minutes, an hour, and the majority of that whole time I was asking him over and over, please forgive me. Because I wanted to keep asking him to forgive me until I felt forgiven. And depending on the severity, sometimes I would go that whole day and still feel like a piece of trash. And I'd just pick it back up the next day. If I had the, any kind of heart to even talk to God the next day, and I'd go to God, and I'd go, God, I'm so sorry. I can't even believe I did that. I just want to quit preaching. What am I trying to preach? People look at me, I'm the biggest screw-up in there in the areas. And, I, and, and sometimes it'd be the third or fourth or fifth day until I would finally feel like, that I was forgiven. And I wasn't never 100% sure because I didn't know when the hammer dropped when I was actually forgiven. But I would try my best to muster the faith to believe that somehow that if I confessed my sins, he would forgive me like I was wrongly taught. And, and then I'd try to go on with my Christian life. I would start every prayer like I was taught. And I would make the starting of my talk with God focused on sin instead of Jesus. And because I was told I need to clean the slate before I talked to him. Because if I didn't get all the sin out of the way, he wouldn't listen to me no way. So I'd spend the first 20 minutes of my prayer time asking God to, you know, forgive me of all my sins. The ones I did and the ones I did that I didn't know I did. And the ones I... Yeah, trying to go from four to six. Hope one day I might be a seven. So that God would like me. That is a horrible, religious, damnable blasphemous way to live because it, it takes no faith to grovel but it takes tremendous faith in the finished work of Jesus on your worst day your worst moment in your mind to stand there with sin present on the table to say it doesn't matter I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus I am just as righteous before God as Jesus is. No matter what I did, Father, you can say I'm sorry for what I did because I don't mean that's not who I am anymore. And I thank you that when Jesus died, he forgave all sin. But Father, I am righteous. I'm still righteous. I'm eternally righteous. I'm forever righteous because he sits on the throne of grace. You receive that this morning. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Come on, give God praise. Amen. You're dismissed, church. We love you. God bless you.